Elizabeth, Abigail, and Anne. Three young girls began to have convulsions. They displayed wild behavior, and they began to utter guttural, just almost uh, just the strangest sounds you could ever hear. And they, under pressure, they were brought by their parents to the magistrate, and they were uh, blamed. Uh, they blamed three women for their affliction. Uh, Tituba, who was a Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, who was a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, who was an elderly, impoverished woman, for their affliction. They blamed these uh, elderly women for their affliction. And on March 1st, 1692, the Salem witch trials began. It wasn't until a well-respected pastor, Cotton Mather, uh, pleaded with the governor, William Phipps, to stop the killing that the trials ended. It wasn't until 1957, 250 years later, that Massachusetts finally apologized for the events of 1692. In all, 19 people were hanged on Gallows Hill. One 71-year-old elderly man was crushed to death uh, by stones. Today, we use the phrase, we call it a witch trial. And, and essentially, when we think of that, we think of somebody who is getting, uh, not getting justice, but the charges are brought, and they're false charges. And essentially, that's when we look at Jesus, and we look at the passage this weekend, we're going to see that's essentially what it comes down to. False charges are being brought against Jesus. He's being brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, uh, with, the, with the charges of insurrection. Uh, he, and they knew he wasn't doing that. But even after his examination, Pilate says of Jesus, he says, I find no basis, to char- or, no basis or charge against this man. So even Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. We're in the middle of a series called 24, and we're looking at 24 hours that really shaped the world as we know it. It began where Jesus sat down at his tables and began to tell them how he was going to go away. And he celebrated what we would call communion. Uh, then later on he went into, the, the, into a garden and he prayed with his disciples. And he f- said, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, let it pass, but not my will, but your will be done. Then last weekend we talked about where he was brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders, and how they began to, they, were, they charged him with blasphemy. They began to spit upon him, they slapped him, they beat him, and they sent him off to Pilate. This weekend we're going to pick up the story and we're going to look at this political trial where Jesus comes before Pilate. So last weekend we looked at the religious trial. This weekend we're looking at the political trial. And, and, and essentially what's going on here with Jesus is the, the religious leaders cannot bring a charge of blasphemy because that's a religious charge. So they're going to bring a charge of insurrection, that Jesus is claiming to be a king and he's claiming to overcome and overthrow the Roman government. Um, so we want to pick up the passage. It's, on, uh, it's, Ma- it's Mark chapter 15, I'm going to, at verse 1. It's page 777. If you don't have a Bible and it's your first time here, you've been here once or twice, we have these chair Bibles. Just pull one out and go ahead and grab that Bible because we're going to read just the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 15 and at, at page 777. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. That's the Sanhedrin. 
And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of, Je- king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they had asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he he answered them, saying, (coughs) Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, what, well, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So this weekend, what we want to do is we want to look at two people and draw two lessons from each person. We want to look at Pilate and we want to look, you know, Pilate's relationship and his interaction with with Jesus. And we want to look at Barabbas and Barabbas's interaction with Jesus. So the first lesson between Jesus and Pilate is the lesson of injustice. Now, Pilate's uh, fortress, his Antonia fortress, was about a quarter of a mile from the high priest's location. So last week, they've gone about a quarter of a mile. It's fairly close and uh, was both the governor's residence and it was a military garrison where Pilate was, uh, where Jesus was brought. It was probably on Friday morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, probably somewhere around that time. So it was early morning, Friday morning. The Jewish authorities knew that Jesus was not interested in an insurrection. They knew that. They, 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 uh, they, but they knew that they had to bring a charge other than blasphemy because blasphemy wasn't something that, in fact, at one point, uh, Pilate basically says, this is not, I have nothing to do with this. This is, this, this is not in my jurisdiction. You need to settle it. Uh, they need, but they needed to find charges because blasphemy wasn't enough. Now, it says in our text, and you probably caught that, that they knew, Pilate knew, that what was going on here is, they knew that they had envy towards Jesus. That they, they, uh, so uh, he was charged not with blasphemy, but claiming to be the king of the Jews. Um, it's interesting, as you read Mark's account, Jesus only says one thing. When Pilate asks him the question, he, 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 Jesus says, you say so. <laughs> well, you say so, or you say so. If you read the other gospel accounts, you can see there's a little more dialogue. But the one thing you see is uh, in, all of the, in all of the dialogue that Jesus has here with Pilate, he does not try to defend himself. His words are very few. He doesn't make a case for himself. He doesn't make a case for his innocence. He just basically acknowledges, you know, and in and, and Mark's account, basically, Jesus just kind of shut his mouth. He didn't say anything. And I think that's really a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. This is what it says. You don't have this in your notes, but... Uh, Let me read it to you. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
And that's the picture that I have of Jesus as he goes before Pilate. He knows what's going to take place. He is headed towards the cross. He is offering himself as a sacrificial limb, uh, sacrificial lamb for our sins. That's what Jesus is doing. So there's no real need to make a case in his defense. There's no real need to defend himself. He doesn't do that. Uh, Isaiah goes on in verses 4 or 5 of chapter 3. He says, Surely he, speaking of the Messiah, ultimately speaking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So we see this is a really important passage because it tells us that this Messiah was going to come not as a conquering king, not as an insurrectionist, but as a servant, as a savior, as a lamb. That's why John, when he saw Jesus, John the Baptist, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's very clear what Jesus is doing. He's on mission. In the, in the, in the account of, uh, that Luke gives us in his gospel, Paul declared... Or, Excuse me, Pilate declared three times uh, that he found no guilt in Jesus. Three times. And in the passage we just read, you, you could see why Pilate did it. Because of his fear of the people. Because of his fear of the people. So uh, it came, it really, that's what it came down for, for Pilate. But there's three lessons we can learn about this whole thing of injustice. And the, and the first one is this. If Jesus didn't find justice, should we think that we're entitled to it? Most of us live in America and we assume that justice, we should be able to get justice. And, and we live in a country where justice is generally something we can grasp from time to time. But in general, Jesus didn't find justice. So should we think as one of his followers that we will find justice? Uh, Roseanne Barr, that theologian, once said, <laughs> To expect life to treat you good is foolish is as foolish as, uh, as hoping a bull won't hit you because you're a vegetarian. That's probably true, right? So, um, Jesus never sought his justice here on earth. He never tried to make his case. He, he didn't try to defend himself. Why? Because he came to die. Because he came as a rescue party of one. See, his mission was to die. Very clearly, his mission was to die. So if you're here and you say, I want justice here and now, take, a, take a, a, a note from Jesus when basically he said, justice isn't necessarily going to come this side of heaven. The second thing to see is, because you may be going right now through people have misunderstood you. They brought false charges against you. They've said horrible things about you. And you say, I just want justice. Uh, the second thing about injustice is, the injustices we experience here on earth do not go unnoticed in heaven. Your Father sees everything. Do you, not, do you not think that the Father was not watching these trials? Now think about that. If that was your son or your daughter that was going through those, in, those cruel and terrible things that were going on, how would that make you feel? How, I mean, you would say, let me at him, right? I'll, give, I'll take care of this right now. But the Father withheld that. Uh, you may be looking for your day in court. Jesus was looking forward to a day in heaven when the accounts would be settled. He wasn't looking for his day in court. Peter puts it this way. It's interesting. 
Peter says this. He says, He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Now, from, the, from just the, uh, the bystander, you could look at the, what Jesus had done and what Barabbas has done. You could say, well, of course, Jesus is innocent, absolutely innocent compared to Barabbas. He didn't do anything wrong. Jesus was saying this, I am willing to entrust my case to the highest court, and I know that he will do just by me in his good time. And I want to ask you a question this weekend. Can you say that to God? Can you say, God, injustice is going on around me. I'm not getting the promotion. People are saying things about me. Uh, things are, you know, all that stuff. Can you say, you know, I don't have to get out there and I don't have to defend myself. I'll believe that one day you're going to set things right. And it may not be the side of heaven, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. The injustices we experience here on earth do not go unnoticed in heaven. And number three, remember that God can turn injustice into deliverance. The injustice that Jesus is suffering is going to be the, the basis for our deliverance. If He does not go to the cross, we do not have, a, we do not have our sins forgiven. Um, look at what Peter says. Peter says something, and you might want to turn there just for a minute. Acts chapter 2 and I don't have that in your notes either, but Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. I'll read it to you. You can just listen. But there's two things that go on here that I think are just an, it's an amazing passage of Scripture. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he's basically telling the people, the Messiah, Jesus, has come. The good news is the Messiah has come. The bad news is you murdered him. That's the bad news. And he says this in the midst of that sermon. He says, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, signs through him, as you well know. In other words, what Peter's saying is, Jesus, you know the Messiah that the prophets talked about? His name is Jesus. And he, he proved it by his signs and wonders, in many signs and wonders. And then notice what verse 23 says. This is an amazing verse. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. Now, I don't have time to go into this verse. I could do a whole sermon just on that verse because there's so much in there. But what that basically says is that God planned before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come and die on a cross. And if you can't wrap your brain around that, join everyone else in this room because it's beyond our comprehension. What 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 Peter or what uh, Luke records here in the words of Peter is this. He says this. He says God had a plan for Jesus. His plan wasn't to be to find justice this side of heaven. His plan was to die. His plan was to be betrayed. His plan was to be to have people turn coat on him. Uh, and he and Peter says and. You are absolutely responsible for your actions because you crucified him. Even though it was God's plan before the foundation of the world, you're still responsible for your actions. And you say, Pastor, how do those fit together? I have no idea. The point I want you to see, though, is that God can turn injustice into deliverance. So the question I want to ask you this weekend is this. Will you trust that God has your best interest? Can you trust him to handle the injustices you either are encountering or will encounter in the future. Can you trust Him with that? Or will you hold those hurts so close to your heart that you will, in, in, in essence, do very 
harm to your own heart by holding that in and it turns into bitterness and anger and all those negative things. Maybe that's what you're doing right now because you have suffered injustice. What will you do? So that's the first lesson. The lesson of uh, Pilate and Jesus, the lesson of injustice. The second lesson is the lesson of Jesus and Barabbas. So the custom of Pontius Pilate was to release a prisoner to the Jewish people uh, during the festival. Um, And uh, he did this. He timed this. It was interesting because this was timed to, uh, you know, during the uh, Passover, was to be a reminder of the, the nation of Israel and how God released the nation of Israel from Egypt, from the bondage of Egypt. And so it was to coincide with the celebration of the Jews released from the bondage of Egypt. So Pilate used the custom as a way to appease the people. He wanted to appease them, but he also wanted to take away their desire for rebellion. He wanted to come all across as a good guy. He wanted to do something that they would see as, as something good. Uh, so on this day, Pilate had two prisoners. He had Jesus of Nazareth and he had Barabbas. <coughs> Both were charged with leading an insurrection and seeking to be the king of the Jews. Barabbas was out, outright saying that um, Jesus was, uh, that was attributed to him. So Barabbas was, was an insurrectionist. He had led a revolt, a revolt against the Romans. He apparently had uh, murdered Roman collaborators, possibly Roman citizens, and had robbed others using the, the money for his cause. So he was basically a rebel, and he was getting uh, troops together, and he was trying to lead an insurrection. And so Peter, Pilate asked the people, which of these two do you want me to release? Which of these two do you want me to release? And uh, the question is, would it be Barabbas, who had robbed and murdered, or Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth who had done nothing wrong? Which would you do? And Pilate, I think, at this point thought, well, they'll jump on Jesus. They'll, they'll say, yeah, Jesus... Let him go. Let him go. Not Barabbas. Not Barabbas. But what did the crowd do? The the crowd chose Barabbas. And the question is, why? Why would the crowd choose Barabbas? I mean, just a number of days earlier, a week earlier, they were saying, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews, on Palm Sunday. They were throwing their coats down. They were throwing their, their palm branches down. They were waving him as king. And now we have a crowd that is saying, Crucify him. Why the change? How could that happen? Now, I don't have a lot of time here, but let me just give you a few ideas of what I think is taking place. The first thing is, I think you need to understand that this crowd is a small crowd, and it's handpicked by the religious leaders. This is not just the general crowd. This is the small crowd handpicked by the religious leaders. Secondly, it probably consisted of some of the merchants that when Jesus was in the temple, remember he went in the temple and he overturned the, the money changers' tables. Remember he did that? If you were a money changer and you were in the temple and some guy comes in and starts knocking and knocks your stuff all over and it gets scattered and lost, <coughs> I think you're going to have a problem with that. And it's very likely that they had a number of the money changers and a number of the people that had lost money there, some of the merchants who were in the crowd, who had no love. There was no love lost for Jesus for after what he had done to them. The other thing is, I think a good group of those people were disenchanted because they thought of Jesus as the king, the king Messiah, who would set them free from the Roman occupation. 
You see, there were a number of, between the intertestamental period of time, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there was a number of uh, men who came who led rebellions against uh, different people. For instance, Simon Maccabee, you probably heard of, maybe you've heard of the book of Maccabees. Maccabees is about these, these raiders' families. And basically they would, they would lead insurrections against the government in, in charge. And Simon Maccabee, 190 years earlier, had freed the Jews from Greek occupation. So he became a hero. He is actually able to get the, the Greek the Greek stronghold that they had on the Jews, gone. So, so they're looking for the next, who's going to be the next Maccabean leader? Who's going to be the next Messiah that's going to come? And they saw Jesus as being that. And what did Jesus do? And what did He say to Peter in the garden? I haven't come to lead a rebellion. Well, a lot of people had put their hopes in Him because they had saw the signs and the wonders that He had performed. And now He's saying, I'm not here to lead a rebellion. See, there's two strands in the Old Testament that you have to see. There's two strands that the prophets talk about. One strand is that there's a king coming who's going to set everything right. And he's going to rule the earth. The other strand is there's a suffering servant that's going to come. And he's going to suffer. And he's going to die. And he's, you know, just those two strands. And so Jesus is basically saying is, I am the king of kings and lord of lords. And one day I will come and reign and rule. But not this time. This time I've come to die. So they were disenchanted. Because they, they thought Jesus was going to be this king messiah. Who would free them from the Roman occupation. And he didn't. So, Pilate releases Barabbas and had Jesus crucified. And this is where we get the basis of what we call substitutionary atonement. It's a theological term, but essentially what it means is this. It essentially just means that Jesus takes our place. Jesus takes our punishment. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's the essence of the doctrine of substitution. Jesus substituted and gave his life on the cross for us. The one who is innocent died for those who are guilty. That's essentially what substitutionary atonement is. Jesus took the punishment Barabbas deserved. So Barabbas really became the first sinner for whom Jesus died. Can you imagine as Barabbas, who knew he was guilty and Jesus was innocent, can you imagine as he walked out a free man that day, knowing that Jesus was taking his sin, was dying for his, instead of him. The Bible tells us a couple of things, and this is really important for us to to know and to understand. And I don't know where you're at today, spiritually speaking, but I do know this, that you have to come to a point where you understand this. Every one of us, there's not a person in this room that hasn't sinned. Paul puts it this way. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. There's not one person. And if we're honest, we say absolutely. Now, we may make the best case scenario for ourselves, but none of us is going to walk out of here and say, no, I've never sinned. The second thing is that our sin alienates us from God. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. Your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So this just shows us that our sin causes a a disconnect from our Father in heaven. 
there's a disconnection. And so if we've sinned once, there's a disconnect. And so we have a problem here. And it's, you may be here and you can say, well, Pastor, you know, the one thing I've always wondered is why can't God just, why can't he just forget it? Why can't he just forgive? Why does Jesus, his son, have to die? I mean, it seems barbaric. It seems bloody. It seems a little bit strange that, that, that God's son would have to come and die in my, for my sins. I mean, I understand that, but I don't know why God just can't just get over it and just forget. There's two problems with that. One is justice. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second one is this. Let's just say that today you went and got a new car. Brand new. Okay? Brand new car. And I walk out in the parking lot, and I walk up to your car, and I go, wow, that is a beautiful car. And it's expensive. I mean, you've been, you've been waiting for a long time to buy this car. It's really nice. It's just, just beautiful. And I say to you, can I take it for a ride? And you kind of don't really want to, but I'm in the pastor. I mean, what are you going to do? You, know, you just So um, you go, yeah, okay. So um, I get in the car, and I just, like, zoom down the road. And, I mean, I'm going a little faster than I should, like 90 or so. But your car is really fast, and it's really cool. And uh, so I'm gone for 15 minutes. You begin to worry. You know, you begin to say, where is my car? What is he doing? And I bring the car back, and it's a mess. I mean, it's, I, I had a couple bumps, a little, you know, you know sideswiped the guy going down the northwest arterial. Just had a couple. There are a few issues with a, with a cart, and, you know, there's just, uh, you know, and I bring it back, and I throw you the keys, and I say, thanks for the ride. And you go, wait a minute, what about my car? I go, can't you just forget about it? What's the problem there? The problem there is, it's easy for us to say to God, can't you just get over it? Can't you just forget it? Because we're not the offended party. But when we're the offended party, it's easy for someone else to say, well, can't you just get over it? When it's your, when you're the person that's offended, you, it's, it's easy for someone else to say that. And so God takes the initiative. That's the amazing thing about it. God takes the initiative to, to fix things. And the third point is justice calls for, for, punish, for the punishment for the sins committed. Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there has to be a payment for the... And you say, well... And I said there's two reasons why God can't just forgive sin. Because we want justice. Every one of us wants justice. We don't want it for us, but we want it for someone else. Like We want justice for Mussolini and Hitler and some these, these uh, people who have just done terrible harm to children and, you know... All these things. We want justice. Well, if we want justice, you can't just cherry pick justice. Say, I want justice here, and I want justice here, and I want justice here. But I want any justice here. So justice calls for the punishment for the sins committed. And then the, third, the next thing we see is Jesus paid the price that he did not owe. Here's the thing I want you to see is we, like Barabbas, have been spared because Jesus, through his suffering and death, took the punishment we deserve. Barabbas was guilty that day. He deserved to die. And every one of us deserves to be judged. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. Dead to our rights, guilty. Barabbas that day walked out. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. It was gifted to him. 
He walked out a free man that day, and he didn't deserve it. So what are the lessons that we can learn about this idea of, of uh, Jesus and Barabbas? Well, the first thing is that we're all guilty as charged and we're all dead to rights. We've all, we've all gone our own way. We've all sinned. There is no one who is sinless. And Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him, on who? On the Messiah, on Jesus, the sins of us all. When Jesus hung on the cross, the worst thing that He suffered was not the physical and torment and the physical pain. It was the weight of the sin of the world that fell upon Him that, that, that evening. He took the burden of our sin. And you say, what is that like? If you've ever sinned and you've ever done something kind of awful and you, you, you have hurt somebody and you have really done some damage in another person's life, there is a certain amount of guilt and there's a certain amount of pain that you carry. Just amplify that by billions and you understand a little bit about what Jesus carried when He died. So we're all guilty as charged. We're all dead to our rights. Number two, we all need a substitute. We all need a Savior. Not only was Jesus innocent, but Barabbas was the guilty one. Jesus was innocent and had done nothing deserving death. And uh, as we read through the Scriptures, in uh, Galatians, Paul says this, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When He was hung on a cross, He took upon Himself the curse for um, our wrongdoing. For it is written in the Scriptures, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So you understand this theme of, of us being straying away from God. Sinners. And, and God sending a rescue party of one Jesus and Him becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you understand now why Jesus doesn't make a defense of Himself. He could have absolutely done that. He could have, you know, there's a song He could have called 10,000 angels now. Well, He could have. But He chose not to. Jesus came to give His life He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He took all of our sin on a cruel Roman cross. You see, we all have a debt we cannot pay. So Jesus came to pay the debt for us. And that's the essence of Christianity. And sometimes we begin with the good news and we say, hey, good news, you know, God loves you and wants to forgive you. And some of us say, for what? Well, we haven't talked about the first thing. And the first thing is we're guilty and we need a Savior. And we've, we've offended a holy God. See, Pilate re- released Barabbas the guilty and handed over to death Jesus the innocent. And here we have a picture of our own release affected by the cross through faith. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be forgiven. Have you done that? See, in Barabbas, we have a, a glimpse of our guilt, deserving death, and a preview of the grace that, that, of Jesus which sets us free. And when Barabbas walked out free that day, that was a picture of what was going to take place to all who call upon Jesus. In the end, what we have to do is we have to come to a place where we say we are all Barabbas. We are all sinners. We are all guilty as charged. We are all dead to rights. See, Mark wants us to identify both with Jesus and Barabbas. 
Like Barabbas, we are sinners and criminals who have broken God's law, guilty as charged, deserving of death for our rebellion against our Creator, the ruler of the universe. We are insurrectionists, not against the Roman government, but against Almighty God, because we have said, I will be God. I will call my shots. But Paul, that Mark wants us to, to identify with Jesus. We are united with Him by faith. Uh, his death is our death. Really, the first step of salvation comes down to this. We have to come to a place and we have to admit, I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Until you come to that point in your life, you will not understand the gospel. You won't appreciate the gospel. You won't think you need it. You'll think I'm pretty good. And I want to just say there's a whole bunch of people in this community that are trying to be good enough. But in the end, they'll never make it. We have to come to a place where we say, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I'm dead, I can't save myself, I'm drowning in sin. And unless Jesus comes from heaven to earth, I have no chance at all. What Jesus did is he climbed up on a cross and he said, I love you this much. I give my life for you. The innocent for the guilty. And we say back to him, I'm guilty. I am Barabbas. But when we say, I am Barabbas, and we acknowledge our identification as sinners and lost and helpless and criminals and insurrection, forming an insurrection against heaven itself, then the grace of God can flood into our lives. Then we can find the forgiveness and freedom that God offers. But until we come to that point of acknowledging that we're Barabbas, there is no need. There is no desire. Because we don't see ourselves as guilty. May we leave this place understanding we are all Barabbas needing someone to take our place. And that someone is Jesus. The innocent for the guilty. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve this. We can't earn it. Help us to come to our senses to see that we are Barabbas, that we are guilty. It may be that there's some here that are have had experienced injustice this week, maybe in the last few weeks. And there's a bitterness and there's an anger they've been holding into their heart. May they take a lesson from Jesus and let it go and trust you to handle it. Because you see it, you are aware of it, and you will deal with it. May all of us, Father, in this place understand that we're desperately lost beyond our wildest comprehension. That we are not good, we are sinners, we are Barabbas, and we need Jesus the innocent, to take the place of us, the guilty. And thank you that he did. And the last words he uttered was, it is finished. Thank you, Father, for the grace and mercy that can only come from a cross through a Savior sent from heaven. And we love him and we thank him in Jesus' name. Amen.